All right, it's Acts, the 22nd chapter that we are in today, and we are um, right smack dab in the middle of kind of an intense scene. Uh, Acts 22 is a, a very poor chapter break. We ended on that last week, but we're trying to be respectful of the chapter divisions that the experts have placed in our Bibles, and so we're going to pick up in Acts 22, verse 1. Jason, are you ready to... Uh, uh, stand in trial with Paul. Well, we're 75% of the way through the book, uh, FYI. Did you just do that math so, right I, I just did, right in front of you. Right. So, boom. That's pretty good. And Jason's not even a math teacher. So, oh. um, <laughs> Alright, so um, we are here in the, uh, it, it's not in the middle, we're here in the, at the beginning of Paul giving his defense, but we are certainly in the middle of, a, of what had been a chaotic scene uh, in chapter 21 when Paul had come to Jerusalem uh, we talked about, you know, against the urging of many of his brethren, he has come, and the warning had been given to him about the trouble that awaited him there, and it didn't take long before the trouble found him. And the accusation that was brought was that, hey, look, Paul's in the temple, and he's got Greek guys with him. And um, there's no actual indication that that was true, uh, but that was the assumption at the time. And so these Jews come and they lay their hands on him and they're ready to just, you know, full bore, just do what they want with, with, with Paul. Um, we have, however, this, this tribune, or how does the New American Standard keep referring to this Lysias fella? Is it tribune or... Uh, uh, mine is commander. Officer? All right, this commander. is commander, yeah. who we later find out his name is, uh, I think, Claudius Lysias or something to that effect. Yeah. Um, he intervenes, um, being a Roman officer, and recognizes that, whoa, hey, we can't be having all of this kind of stuff happening here. It's going to get me in trouble, and everybody's going to get in trouble. So he jumps in, kind of pulls Paul away, going to sit him down and talk to him and uh, figure out what's going on. And that's where Paul then asks, hey, friend, can you just let me have an opportunity to just speak to these people? I think it'll make just a, a tremendous difference if I can have the opportunity to just talk to these people. Um, from this point forward, really, um, in one form or another, um, Paul is going to be in Roman custody for the remainder of, of, of the book of Acts. And Paul or Luke, in recording all of this, he's really going out of his way um, to exonerate Paul. You know, he's going to go in, in detail in recording all these different speeches that Paul makes, um, giving all these other kinds of details um, to tell exactly what had happened with him, what really is going on with this guy. Again, the reaction of the mob here, a lot of it's just based on misinformation or truth that had gotten stretched and, you know, telephoned and changed over the, 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 the process of time. And so Luke is kind of bending over backwards to, to make clear that, that Paul is an innocent man. He's not done anything wrong. Having said all that, I wanted to, to kind of just preface that uh, and, and lay that out to just say, even though we're going to be looking at Paul's defense here, we're going to see this happen two or three more times before the book's over. And it's going to be very Paul-heavy. Let's not forget that this book is not about the work of Paul. Hmm. This book is about the work of Jesus and about the work of Christ. Um, you know, Paul wouldn't have even been arrested if it were not for his devotion to Jesus Christ. Uh, he wouldn't have a gospel to preach or a gospel to defend 
if it were not for Jesus Christ. Um, and so while there is a lot of attention, you know, and we're going to pay attention to Paul, we want to keep in our mind that it is Jesus at work here. This is the work of Christ, His church. Uh, Jesus is still active and working uh, on planet Earth during all of this, uh, and that's who needs to be kind of the star of the show. And in turn... He's still working today. That's exactly right. And that's, exactly you know, right. That, that's how we look at it. Not, you know, man, what am I doing in my ministry? But what am I doing to help the cause of Christ? Yeah. And, you know, to to be his, his hands, you know, to be his tool that he's using to reach the world Here right on this now. earth, yep. Um, so we come to chapter 22 now, verse 1. Uh, well, the end of chapter 21 said that Paul began to address them in the Hebrew language, going to speak to this audience of very angry people. Verse 1, he says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Um, I think some translations, and maybe the New American Standard, says men and brethren and fathers. Um, the ESV just includes brothers and fathers. I don't know if the numeric standard just brethren and fathers. Brethren and fathers. Yeah. I think maybe maybe the King James or some of the other translations kind of broke down to three different categories. And if that is true, if there were these three, um, it may kind of speak to Paul addressing three kind of categories of people. Men is just the generic word aner, which may mean to address any kind of Gentile men that may have been in the audience. Brethren, of course, is kind of that term that gets used by Israelites, by Jewish people to address fellow Jews. And then, of course, fathers here, I think probably is uh, maybe talking about the idea of uh, those who are kind of the most distinguished, older Jewish men, heads of families, and you know, men that have been uh, doing this for a long time. So we kind of have this ascending uh, respect being shown toward uh, toward his audience, just in his very first words that he that he utters, um, and he says, "Hear the defense that I now make before you." Verse two then says, "When they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet." So hey, all right, we've kind of got some initial buy-in because he's talking like us. Um, I know that my like my dad, for example, when he goes to um, the Spanish-speaking countries. It's taken him several years, but um, he has learned Spanish to where he can speak it pretty pretty fluently without the assistance of, of, of an interpreter. And I know that one of the reasons that he kind of put in the work to, to learn how to do that is so that it would make him more endearing to people that he would have the opportunity to talk to. That's mm -hmm. not to say that people were resistant to him if he spoke in English and required an interpreter, but um, it certainly makes things more convenient when you can just talk someone's language. But even more, like I said, there's just like just kind of a natural connection that that's created. Oh, well, he's kind of like us. Well, yeah, well, let's hear what this guy's got to say. And Paul's certainly going for that here by talking to them in, in, in their language, in the Hebrew language, which probably for them actually is probably talking about some kind of a blending of Hebrew and Aramaic is my guess. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of like if you were in a room full of people speaking several languages, even if you spoke other languages, your native language, your ear's just more attuned to that. Yeah. And you can hear, you pick it out, and, and you connect automatically, um, even if it's like a subconscious type thing. Um, and I, I think it, it would cause the people 
to you know just pause and be like, okay, well, what's this guy saying? Maybe here's a good just you know we're always looking for evangelistic kind of points to be made. Um, maybe this is a cue for us that when we're talking with folks, and by, by I'm gonna say language here in a second, and by that I don't mean like you know a, a, a foreign dialect necessarily. Mm-hmm. But we need to try to attune ourselves to be able to speak the language that other people can understand. Good point. You know, within the Church of Christ, and there's kind of almost kind of a, a running joke, if you talk with some folks, that there's just like this code language that we speak that uh, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it necessarily, but there's just terms and expressions that we use that you really only understand if you're part of this exclusive club. Mm. You know, think about the expression gospel meeting. Well, you mm. and I, we've grown up in churches of Christ for all of our lives. Well, we know yeah. exactly what that means. Right. But if I'm talking with my friend, I said, hey, won't you come to the gospel meeting next week? There's a good chance my friend's going to say, what is that? <laughs> Don't have yeah. a clue what you're talking about. But if right. I say to them, hey, would you like to come to our revival next week? Oh, you guys are having a revival? Yeah, I'd like to come to that. <laughs> you know, that's and, and, and I think there's a place for us to, I'm not saying that we should, certainly that we should take Bible terms and distort them in some way or, or be embarrassed of Bible terminology, but there is something to be said about just meeting people where they are, and that can even include with being able to talk and communicate in a way to where they can grab on and they can meet us, and maybe we are going to kind of meet halfway on that. Sometimes I think we're guilty of trying to sound smarter than we are. Yeah. And so we just string together a bunch of, of big biblical sounding words. Phrases we've we're heard to, all of our lives. Yeah, yeah. trying to teach people. And, and it's like, well, look how smart I am. Yeah. And that does nothing. And especially if they know what you're talking about and to know that you don't know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes we try to do that. But um, yeah, we, we need to be on the level of, of whoever we're talking to. Yes. Um, whether that's, and, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to put anybody down with this, whether it, it's coming down to their level or rising up to their level. Yeah. Um, and it could just be a vocabulary thing and how people talk. Um, I, I talk differently to my family in Eastern Kentucky than I do to a lot of the people, you know, around here yeah. or, you know, whatever. And so there's just a way of communication um, that sort of like Paul becoming all things to all men. Mm-hmm. We've discussed that before. Yep. But part of that, too, is how we talk. Yeah, this is another way in which we do that. Um, so what's the substance of, of Paul's speech? Well, verse 3, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Let me just say kind of right here at the beginning that, that I think the, the, the whole point of Paul's speech is he's going to paint you know, a, a, a picture of, of himself and, and who he was from you know, here from, from birth, um, and what kind of a Jew he was, and how zealous he was as a Jew, and how devoted that he was to that, but how he has made a dramatic change. There's been a great shift that's taking place, and I think what Paul wants these people to try to understand is that you need to know about what it is that caused that dramatic change in me. 
and that there is no other explanation for this change except something that is literally uh, out of this world, <laughs> you know, yeah. something that is, is, is divine. And he's going to get to that in just a moment, but he's going to begin by painting this picture of, you know, just being one of the Jewiest of, of, of all Jews. You know, by mentioning here in verse 3 that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, I mean, Gamaliel was one of the most well-known, well-respected teachers of that time. And so for Paul to, to kind of, you know, name drop Gamaliel here, people would be like, oh, yeah, okay, mm -hmm. that's pretty serious. The, the mention there as well about uh, according to the strict manner of the law, is, that, is it strict is the word used in your yeah. standard? Yep. You know, I think that speaks to, the, to Paul saying, you know, look, I wasn't just, you know, kind of a nominal Jew. And I wasn't just a you know a, a, a pew filler on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. No, strict adherence. I mean, fully on board, all the way, one hundred percent committed. That's the kind of person that that I was in the Jewish religion. And, and then even that expression as well, uh, zealous for God. Uh, you know, extremely uh, passionate about this. And then he even says there at the end of that about, you know, not only was I zealous for God, but here's a word of commendation for his audience. I was as zealous for God just like you guys are zealous for God and for your, your Judaism even to this present day. And we've seen Paul do that before, you know, when he came in Acts 17 to the, to the city of Athens. He doesn't just start running those people down. No, he begins by telling them, wow, you all are very religious. Um, so here's some, again, some more things to help endear himself to the crowd. But at the same time, he's, he's letting it be known, hey, you want to talk about being, being a, a, you know, a gold star Jew, I, I, I was him. Yeah, you know, we think about Paul being very bold and even confrontational at times. Uh, and he definitely was um, in, to the very degree that he needed to be. But he didn't burn any bridges unnecessarily, right? Um, and he, it, you could tell he cared about the people here. He's making a plea with them. He's not trying to bash them and say, you know, everything you're doing is wrong. You're stupid. Um, I think we can learn from that too, mm -hmm. because sometimes I think we approach people maybe that have a different view on certain religious topics. Um, as being somehow inferior or not as smart. And it's, that's not true uh, or insincere. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who are very sincere in what they do. And so um, we don't need to approach that as, you know, you're preaching for the devil. It, you know, I've heard phrases like that. I know. Like, I, know. I, I can think back to when I was a youngster, like in elementary school and, and some of the things I, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about a, a young kid who used to ride on the bus with me and he was a part of a, of a denominational church that did certain practices and things that, I, I, you know, I was, and I still am convinced are not biblical, but mm. I said things like, like, you're going to hell for doing that, yeah. you know? And there was no, you know, kind of building up to that. It was just, mm -hmm. that was the first thing out of my mouth, you know? Yeah. And it seems like that there is, you know, we may not be that brazen, um, hopefully, at least if those of us that are adults and a little more mature. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like sometimes we we want to just start with just tearing down these things that uh, f for other people are very near and dear to them. Yeah. You know, these are the things and the beliefs and the practices that have been part of their life. It's part of their 
family and their kind of their their heritage and we just think that sometimes the best place to begin is just by tearing all those things down and make no mistake about it if i'm studying with somebody or talking with somebody about religious things a time does need to come where we're going to have to confront those hard issues and paul's going to get to some of these hard issues yeah but that's not where he's going to begin um he's going to he's going to kind of Let's let's work on our commonalities first, and 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 then when the time is right, then we're going to get to those things. Hopefully, by that point, there's some in, investment on the part of the other person, and and those things, the the soil's been well prepared to where now those hard things can be said, but they'll be received in a good and honest heart. Yeah. Um, so Paul's, you know, doing so. He's not. I don't think this is just like empty flattery when he says here that, you know, you all are are, are zealous. Um, but he continues with in verse four by saying, "I persecuted this way." And you'll notice the word "way" there is is capitalized. It's just one of those synonyms for for Christianity. I persecuted the Christianity Christians to the death binding, delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul, you know, just, again, we, we saw this happen in Acts chapter 8 in the first uh, couple of passages, few verses of, of that chapter. But here Paul is just saying, yep, that was... That was me. I did that, and um, and it's because uh, I, I was zealous about this. This is what I believe was the right thing to do. Um, Paul will say on a number of occasions that I did all of this in all good conscience. I really yeah. believe this was the right thing to do. And I think mention, you know, kind of him again name dropping. You know, I went to the high priest, uh, who probably was a very different high priest at that time than is True. the one who's the high priest now, and actually. In the next chapter, I think we're going to see that <laughs> Paul maybe doesn't even really even know who the high priest is at this point. Um, but um, and then dropping, you know, the, the council of elders, etc. Again, here's some terms and some kind of some buzzwords that would cause these Jewish folks to recognize. Okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's not again. He's not just some marginal Jew. He was the real thing. Um, and Paul said, I, I went all the way. You know, all the way to the point of you know. Punishing people to to death. Yeah, and you know he mentioned them being zealous. He's showing how zealous he was in that, and I, I wonder how many of them could compete with the zealousness yeah. that he had. You know, how many of them could say that? No, I went directly to the high priest and to the council of elders, and I got letters so I can go to all these other places and lawfully, with you know, scare quotes, yeah. um, throw them in prison and persecute them and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, maybe you, you don't like what's going on, but did you like pers- like pursue them yeah. and, and throw them in prison? Because like, yeah. that's what I did. Yeah, you know, hey, you, you guys are p- pretty good bad guys, but you're not as good of a bad guy as I <laughs> once was. I mean, yeah. I went full full scale with this terrorist act and uh, yeah, uh, but it's true. I mean, you know, Paul would later write in the Philippian letter that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Nobody's going to be able to compete with him and and with what he did. Um, and again, it's not that Paul, he's not saying all this stuff to build himself up as something great. He's just kind of creating this accurate image in people's mind so that when he then tells about the change that occurred, 
we have to give an account for what is the cause of this great change. Yeah. So, verse 6, uh, here's the, the recollection of the events that took place in Acts the ninth chapter. He says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me, they saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So again, this is a kind of a, a retelling of the Acts 9 uh, story, but there are you know, a couple of these little details that are uh, kind of help fill in some holes from Acts 9, and then we're going to get this again in chapter 26, and you piece all three of these accounts together and you get a, uh, a, a much fuller picture. Um, Maybe one of the things I would just call our attention to is just um, Paul recounting in verse 8, you know, Jesus saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Um, that's how the Jews regarded Jesus, mm -hmm. as nothing more than just Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. You know, Paul does not say here that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to me mm. because they're not on board with that. They're, they're not, they're, they, they, they don't believe that. Um, instead, I'm just going to convey to you who he is to you all. Uh, he's Jesus of, of Nazareth. Um, but, um, you know, makes it clear that, that Jesus is the one who's actually in full control of this situation. I think that's one of the main kind of things I think uh, that's kind of underlying all of this is that the things that Paul does, um, it's in response to what Jesus told him to do. You know, mm. the, the, the series of events that take place here, Paul is kind of making it clear, I really was not the one in control of this. You know, my eyesight was stripped from me. I, I, I'm beholden to others. I'm beholden to the other people who can lead me into the city. I'm beholden to the one who caused my eyesight to go away to then direct me and tell me what to do next. Um, he's he's kind of quietly building up the case for the lordship of Christ here um, by painting the story and telling it in this way. Yeah. Um, there's mentioning details that are here and, and weren't there before. Um Notice that it, it was about noon mm -hmm. when this happened. And uh, I think that makes it more impressive just to realize this bright light happened at noon, which was the brightest part of the day. Yeah. So it's it, it couldn't have been explained just, well, the sun just caught a, a, a strange reflection or whatever. No, the sun was as bright as it's going to be, but there was still an even brighter light. There was something much bigger there which I think is a metaphor that shows just mm -hmm. how bright Jesus is yeah. uh, and his glory and that, that sort of thing. Um, but the other people around him noticed the light too. They saw that as well. Even though they, they couldn't confirm what had been said, they could confirm that something weird had happened. Yeah. Um, and so this was an obvious thing that shouldn't have happened. Yeah, and, th and, that's, and that's maybe kind of the other uh, thing that Paul's doing here by... You know, pointing out that, you know, what happened to me on the road to Damascus, it wasn't just me. 
you know, I'm just making this up. I got yeah. some other guys. In fact, for all we know, some of those other guys may have been here in Jerusalem around this time, and he could, hey, that, that guy over there, and you know, Bartimaeus over there, and Josephus <laughs> over here, and Philotitus over there. You know, <laughs> they were with me that day. They can attest yeah. that. You know, they may can't tell you what what was said. You know, they heard some noise. Uh, but they will tell you that, like you said, something took place that day. Um, this is not, you know, something I dreamed up or imagined. Uh, the next little uh, retelling here is is of the instructions that Ananias gives to Paul, and some of this is well, a great deal of this is not really included in the uh, mm-hmm. the, the Acts nine account. And this is kind of some helpful stuff here, uh, beginning in verse twelve. Um, one Ananias. A devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. Once again, Paul name dropping, hey, there's this guy, a very virtuous man, one of your own, you know, a Jew, a good man, um, you know, according to the law, uh, well spoken of, had a high reputation. This is probably, you know, way more information than we knew about Ananias just from the Acts 9 account. Um, Hey, that guy, he played a role in all this. Verse 13, he came to me and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. You remember Sandra used that same terminology? Righteous one. The righteous one, capital letters, Jesus. And to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Then verse 16, and now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so um, Paul, again, just kind of is, is kind of building up a little um, army of folks to just uh, say, you know, it, it wasn't just me who had become convinced of the authority of this, this, this Jesus character. Uh, obviously, this Ananias guy, good Jew, uh, he also had become convinced of these very same things, and now he's being, you know, used as a a, a tool for the Lord to help bring me to that same uh, point of of faith and obedience. Which, since we're talking about that, the coming together of faith and obedience, let's just talk about verse sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, when Ananias asks a great question, hey, what are you waiting for? You know, you clearly believe at this point that this Jesus guy really is who he said he was all along. Um, you know, uh, was it the Acts 9 account or is it the Acts 26 account that talks about how Paul, you know, had had, had not been eating. He had been fasting for, for some days. Nine. Um, so there's probably some indication of, of some repentance, um, you know, kind of a fruit of, of repentance, the fasting. Um you know, so what's hindering you from going all the way with this and becoming a Christian? And so he then says, you should rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, if you were holding a Ryrie study Bible, and the Ryrie study Bibles are very, very popular 
Uh, I know lots of people. I know some uh, Christians who carry around Ryrie Study Bibles, and it's those Bibles that have you know all those extra little notes in the margin, or maybe even like you know half the page is the text, and like the other half is all these additional little commentary notes by uh, Charles Ryrie, I think is his name, um, who who put together the Study Bible. If you're reading in Acts chapter 22 in a Ryrie Study Bible, there's going to be a little star or something next to verse 16. And a footnote. And you go down to the footnote, and the footnote reads like this, and I quote, Baptism does not wash away sins. <laughs> Thus says Charles, huh. Charles Ryrie in the Ryrie Study Bible. Interesting. Yeah. Um, now, he doesn't give any explanation. If, if you own one, he doesn't give any further explanation other than baptism does not wash away sins. However, if you pull up some of his other written material, and I did go searching for some of his other written material because I'd like to hear an explanation as to what he thinks that verse means. What he argues is that the construction of the Greek in the verse does not demand that baptism is imperative for the washing away of sins. Uh, maybe the biggest problem that I have with, with him saying that is that he actually also does not offer any other explanation as to what it means. Um, he mm. just denies what reading it on the face would seem to be the obvious conclusion. I mean, it really doesn't even matter what translation you're reading from. I'm reading from NSV. You've got a New American Standard. I've got one, two, three, four, five. I mean, I've got like a dozen different uh, Bible translations just right here in front of my computer screen right now, and we could go through and we could read every single one of them of Acts 22.16, and they all would read in such a way that says, baptism leads to the washing away of one's sins. Um, so uh, what do we want to say about, about verse 16, and especially for those who would um, try to exclude baptism from um, God's see what seems like clearly God's order for for the bringing about of salvation. I think a lot of times people focus on the phrase calling on His name, and so we have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and and we have that in several passages. Um, and so, but we get back to the question: Well, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to call on His name? Yeah, is it just saying Lord? Because we're told, in, in I think it's Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, be, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. So, I mean, that can't be it. Right. Um, and so... And that's and even the Matthew 7 passage is even pe speaking of sincere people calling, yeah. you know, calling him Lord, Lord. That's not even talking about just somebody who just kind of, you know, d jokingly or arrogantly says, oh, yeah, Lord, uh, yeah. Oh, look, I'm saved now. No, that's actually talking about people who are sincere. So if that's not the meaning of it, what other possibilities? Yeah, well, and, and back to the Matthew 7, it, Lord, in your name, did we not cast out demons? Didn't we do all this great stuff for you? Yeah. So, yeah, definitely sincere people. So what we got to think, okay, well, what does it mean? How do we find that? Well, uh, we'll go to places that, that talk about that. Well, here's one of them. Mm -hmm. um, now, Acts 2, we, we discussed this a long time ago. Yeah. Boy, that just seems like ages ago. Uh, it does. <laughs> it was only 20 chapters ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there was the quote from Joel 2 mm -hmm. in verse 21 saying, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, and so you think, okay, well, I wonder... 
where that question was answered. You know, well, how do we be saved? What, what does that look like? Um, well, when the people asked Peter, what do we need to do? His response, repent and be baptized, uh, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So, okay, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, when, when your sins are forgiven, does that sound like, I don't know, maybe they're washed away? There's a lot of synonyms that mm -hmm. we have going from one verse to another. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why anytime we pick out one verse to show this is how you are saved, you can get in trouble with that. Yeah. Um, and so looking at all that the Bible says about it is helpful. And so here and from Acts 2, we, we, knew, we knew that the, the quote from Joel said, call in the name of the Lord to be saved. Peter tells them, repent, be baptized uh, for, to have your sins forgiven. Acts 22, we find out Paul was told, well, be baptized to wash away your sins. And that phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, was added to that. So it seems to me, just, just you know, if I was looking at this fresh for the first time, it's like, well, those must be like things that happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that when you look at it like that, maybe throw in 1 Peter 3.21. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly where I was going to connect this to as well, because uh, it seems to kind of use some of the, maybe sort of a similar terminology. You know, Peter talks about baptism uh, now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That expression uh, that it's an appeal to God for a good conscience that to me sounds like a pretty close synonym to calling on the name of the Lord, because that's what we're doing: is we're 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 calling out to Him for 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 salvation. We're calling out to Him for that good good conscience. And in all of those passages, Acts two, Acts twenty two, First Peter chapter three, um, the common denominator in all that is when baptism is is happening. Um, and of course, there's a zillion other passages about baptism that you know you would want to take into consideration as well to get a, a fuller and complete picture. But um, Paul, actually, at least on this occasion, uh, he didn't need all of those other you know passages that explained all the dimensions of baptism. It was enough for him, evidently, to uh, to be asked the question, "Hey, what are you waiting for? You should get up and be baptized and have your sins washed away." And Paul, at that point in his life, being Full of sin. Mm. I mean, he had a bunch of sin that needed to be washed away. I'm guessing he hopped up and ran to find the first, <laughs> you know, pool of water he could find to be yeah. baptized right away. And um, and so, yeah, we, we see here that, that baptism, once again, is being clearly um, connected to uh, God's order and God's plan for for, for a human's salvation and for their sins to be washed away. Um, you know, what you said earlier, I was glad you said it about it's not phrased the same way in every passage. You know, the forgiveness of sins denotes one aspect. Uh, the washing away of our sins kind of calls to mind kind of a, a, a different image. Uh, and there's other such uh, mm. you know, synonyms that are used throughout the New Testament, but all of those are, are speaking to... to to salvation. Um, yeah. Now you think about what people explain this story as. If Okay, so if baptism isn't the thing that saved him, at what point was he saved? What a lot of people will say is, well, Jesus appeared to him. And when Jesus appeared to him, when he talked to him, that's when he was saved. Yeah. 
Um, and then they'll try to make a connection to say, that means for us to be saved, we need to have some kind of personal uh, connection with Jesus himself. And he needs to tell us that we're saved. But where does Jesus tell Paul that he's saved? No, what does he tell Paul to do? Go in the city and then you're going to find out what you need to do. Yeah. You know, it, it, he didn't sound like a saved man at that point. Uh, and put on top of that, as much as he fasted and, you know, prayed in the, that three days, um, there, was, there was a lot. If he was already saved, you know, why all the grief? Yeah. Um, after he was baptized, he immediately gets up, takes food, and, and he's, he's much better off. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, the thing Ananias told him, wash away your sins. Yeah. Why would you need to wash them away if Jesus already had saved you? Right. If, and it's certainly if, if praying a, a sinner's prayer w- yeah. w- could wash away sins. I mean, I'd like to think if anybody ever prayed the sinner's prayer, it was Paul on that yeah. occasion. Yeah. Um, but sure. evidently, whatever prayers he was praying didn't fully uh, you know, bring that to pass. One of the things people will sometimes point out is in verse 13 when Ananias comes to him, he refers to him as Brother Saul. And I think we dealt with this a little bit in when we were talking in chapter 2 because mm-hmm. when the people asked, you know, brothers, what shall we do? Uh, let's just be mindful here. Brother here is not meant in the sense of a brother in Christ. Brother here is talking about a, a Jewish brother. In fact, Paul's... Um, kind of uh, little biography, little quick biography of Ananias in the previous verse, in verse 12, makes it very clear. Ananias was a Jew. And here he is coming to his other fellow Jew, and they called each other the terminology that all Jews referred to each other as at that time. You're brethren. Um, And so that's the meaning of that term. He wasn't a brother in Christ in verse 13, but at the end of verse 16, he was a brother in Christ, you know. I mean, Paul himself, the first verse of this chapter, he called the crowd of Jews who were wanting to kill him. Brothers. Brother, yeah. yeah. So I, I would not assume at all that they were Christians. Right. Um, well, so, uh, so Paul is now a Christian. He's, you know, he's told the story about this dramatic change that's taken place. And it wasn't even just in the becoming of the Christian. It's even, even after he became a Christian still radical changes taking place in his life. Verse 17. Quick uh, quick thing yes. here about verse 15. When he, he says that he's going to be a witness mm-hmm. for him, um, uh, for all that he's seen and heard, I think we need to be careful throwing that word around. I think a, a lot of people use that in a way that's not helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't be a witness the same way Paul was. Right. Um, I am not uniquely qualified. It, it seems like Paul's saying he's uniquely qualified because he saw yeah. the risen Lord. You've and, never had a personal encounter with Jesus. Right. Yeah. And so I can't witness to people like that. I yeah. can teach people. Right. I can show them the evidence. But I can't do what he did. And so it's just, you know, one of those things. Right. And it's a term that, you know, I, it's not really a term that I use, you know. But I... I, I I think most people probably, when they use it, probably have good intentions, and and, right. and they probably don't mean you know in the sense that it's used here in this verse. They probably True. just mean, I just want to be a, a, a witness to the things the Lord has done in my life. Right. And if that's what somebody yeah. means, okay, that's fine. But again, like you said, we just need to be careful. You know, we always want to use Bible terms and Bible ways, and uh, in this particular instance, it, it means something very specific. The way that the other apostles, Jesus said they would be witnesses for Him. Again, that meant something that was very 
particular to them and only mm. to them and cannot, cannot apply to us. Um, so verse 17, the, the, the transformation of, of, of Saul, Paul, uh, continues when he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Now, I, I think it's, again, intentional on Paul's part to point out that he's going to the temple and praying. Again, <laughs> making a statement about something that would have been uh, very near and dear to the hearts of the people that he's talking to. They valued the temple. I mean, these people were, you know, kind of almost deified the temple itself, you know. And in fact, part of what the accusation here is against Paul is that he's bringing stuff into the temple that shouldn't be there. Paul's like, nope, uh, the temple, I, I treated it, you know, the way it's supposed to be treated. Um, he says, I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, and this is, again, more information that the Acts 9 passage doesn't uh, tell us, Make haste. Get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. So the Lord evidently had spoke to Paul again, uh, even after he had become a Christian. Verse 19, I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. This is Paul, you know, I don't know if we can maybe even pick up the tone here, but this is kind of, it seems like Paul's kind of, I don't want to say arguing with the Lord, but <laughs> yeah. it's like he's kind of trying to make a case to the Lord, like, hey, Lord, you know, I'm the right person for this job at mm. this point in his life. You know, I'm, you know, I'm the best person to talk to these Jewish folks. You know, I'm the guy who was there when uh, Stephen was being killed. And so these people know me, and they're going to listen to me, and they're going to receive everything that I'm going to tell them about you. Jesus knows better than that. <laughs> yeah. You know, because <laughs> here Paul is in essentially the very situation that Jesus was trying to spare him from some 20-plus years later, standing yeah. before an audience of bloodthirsty Jews... And Jesus knows good and well at that point in time, it wasn't going to turn out well. And so here Paul is once again now before a bunch of bloodthirsty uh, Jews, and it, it's not really going to go that. It's not going to lead to his death here, but uh, but it's not going to go well. And so Jesus at the time, you know, sent Paul out of Jerusalem away, and that helps kind of fill in some of the gaps um, from earlier in the book um, that there was that that period where you know Paul was. Uh, away from Jerusalem, and we don't know all the details of where he went and what he was doing during that time, at least not everything, um, but this is the reason for it. Jesus is the one who told him to, to get out of Dodge. How many times do we think that we know what's best, <laughs> and, and we know what I am best suited for, and you know, I'm the perfect person for this job, I can do this, and then it doesn't work out, and we're like, well, why didn't that work out? You know, I, I, I would have been the perfect person for that. Sometimes we never find out. We, we never get sort of any kind of information as to why we weren't or why someone else was chosen or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, and I, I don't know that Paul had that answer yet. You know, Jesus basically just ignored him. I was like, go. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Verse 21, but it didn't read it. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Yeah. And so it, it's like Paul at that point, I, I don't know that he understood. Um, he still at that point, might not have. Yeah. Um, but I think, as you alluded to, we're going to see that, uh, we're going to find out why. Um, he's also at this point, at that point in time, um, he's a babe in Christ. 
And True. how many times have you maybe, you know, encountered someone who's a babe in Christ and they come up out of the water and to their credit, I mean, they are just blazing on fire. They are mm-hmm. ready to go. You know, I, I'm ready to just take the whole world and, and man, we're just going to convert everybody and I know exactly what I'm going to do. And, you know, you, you certainly don't want to, you know, stifle the, the, the spirit and the zeal of, of folks like that. But I know for those who are maybe a little bit older and a little more mature, there's always kind of this delicate handling of like, okay, how can we, you know, again, not stifle the zeal, but at the same time try to kind of help mold and bring them along and mm. uh, not set them up for, for what may end up being disastrous and, and, and uh, potentially faith-wrecking. And... Um, and that's always a challenge, and I'm not saying that I've even figured out, you know, exactly how to do that. The Lord obviously is well capable of doing that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for sure. He's the Lord. He's, he's perfect <laughs> at everything. Um, but but it is something we always have to be mindful of with 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 new Christians and uh, trying to strike the exact right chord of right. zeal, yes, but also try to be tempered with with some measure of reality. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we. We just need to realize our our position yeah. uh, in the whole grand scheme of things. Um, you know, God's going to use us how He wants to use us. We need to be active. We need to be searching for things we can do, and yeah. we need to be diligent in doing them. But when we try to plan out exactly, you know, okay, I want to talk to this person. I want to say this thing, and then they're going to be converted. And then I want to talk to this person, and because that other person was converted, then I could say that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's not how it works. Um, we just we, we go and we do what the Lord wants in, in that situation. And if it doesn't work out, then don't get discouraged and don't stop. Just just keep going. Find your next opportunity. Because I don't think we're going to get these these times where Jesus speaks to us directly and says, Nope, you're going in the wrong directions. Don't, mm-hmm. don't go there. No, I, but sometimes I think things happen to where it's, it, it's obvious that, Okay, maybe this isn't the direction I need to go. Maybe I need to start doing this. Yeah. The other thing that uh, I want us to notice from, from verse 20, uh, when he says that the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, uh, and I stood by and you know, approved of all of that. Um, as Paul is, you know, he's, he's recounting this conversation, and he's saying this to this Jewish audience, this is Paul's way of, of now saying, um, I was wrong in yeah. what, what I took part in in Stephen's death. Um, this is Paul saying Stephen was a martyr, mm-hmm. and um, and and if possibly if there was anybody in that crowd that day who happened to be in the same crowd some twenty plus years earlier, it's an indictment against them that That's you also true. were wrong in taking part in that. Um, verse twenty one though is the 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 the, the ver- or the, the the final word that ends up changing the whole dynamic of of this defense because as Jesus said go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles boom (laughs) that word Gentiles is the trigger word that ends up setting off this audience because the very next thing verse 22 up to this word they listened to him you know we were fine with all of everything else that you had said you really were saying a lot of things that you know struck a chord with us but now this implication that this Lord of yours was going to send you to go to the Gentiles, essentially to preach to them 
and to help them be saved. And so essentially what you're saying is that those people are on equal footing with us in the eyes of God. You've done gone to meddling now, buddy. <laughs> that's, that, 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 that's where the line is, and you've yeah. crossed that line. You know, and I said earlier that whenever we're studying with folks, I, I, I understand about this from, from a preacher standpoint. You know, if I know that I'm going to be preaching on a subject that potentially could ruffle some feathers, you know, like if I'm preaching on some kind of a, a, a moral issue, if I'm preaching on uh, clothing and modesty, <laughs> all right, that's always, you're going to run the risk of there's going to be folks that are just not going to appreciate what's, what's said about that. True. And so I know what my approach is. My approach is I, I want to try to get some buy-in as, as much as possible in the beginning before I get to those hard things that need to be said. Um, and there is the recognition that when we get to those hard things, this could go one of two ways. You yeah. know, Hopefully, maybe I've built up enough goodwill, and, and more importantly, the Word has been communicated effectively enough to where people are going to be like, okay, yeah. That's true. You know what? I didn't. Uh, that's not what I believed prior to this, or that I didn't really think about that prior to this. But yeah, that's exactly right. It could go that way, but there's always the possibility it could go the other way, and that mm -hmm. is people are like, "Nope, fingers in the ears, la 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 la, not going to hear it." And unfortunately, it was option B that happens here with with Paul. Yeah, it's amazing to me, but I mean, it makes sense if you think about how the Jews looked at the Gentiles, but. All that Paul said about Jesus would have been pretty offensive to them, you know, implicating that, that <laughs> Jesus was actually Lord and that he had given him this, this task and that he had appeared to him, that, uh, you know, he was baptized for the remission of sins and, you know, all of this and, and the, the second appearance of Jesus to him and how he was talking to him. I mean, just no matter what were what were they thinking when he was saying that sort of thing? Yeah, you know, was he making some progress with them? Maybe I yeah. don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, but you know, it's it's that that buzzword. Yeah, you, you mentioned Gentiles once, and it's like, okay, nope, uh, automatic, turn that switch off, and I'm not going to listen to anything else. There are I can think of like just people in my life that. There are always those buzzwords where it's like, I'm going to try to dance every way I possibly can around that, that word, you know, keep them from setting them off. Um, but again, especially when we're talking about spiritual matters and we're talking about the gospel, um, there just comes a point where we've got to pull the trigger, whether we, yeah, whether we for sure. like that or not. And, and the tough things have to be said. And, and I know that Paul knew that that was what was going to be um, a, a possibility here. But mm -hmm. I preached this a few weeks ago when I was preaching about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Loving your neighbor demands that you take risks. Mm. You know, there's a great risk that was involved when that Samaritan in the, in the parable stops and helps, you know, the guy laying in the ditch. You know, there was the risk that you know it was all just a, a you know a ruse, and the guy was you know you know playing possum, and he's going to kill him. Yeah. Um, but when we truly love others, we're going to take that risk, and and that is especially true when it comes to um, 
evangelism. You know, th there are people in our lives that we love and care for dearly, and there comes a moment in time where we're going to have to just be willing to just take that critical step and run the risk of them getting angry at us. We run the risk of possibly losing a friendship, run the risk of, um, you know, a, a child rebelling and turning against us and never wanting to talk to us again. But real love demands that we're going to take that risk. And Paul, he loved these people. And that's that's the, 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 just the wild thing about all this that we don't say enough, <laughs> is these are his brethren by blood that he loved and he wanted them to be saved and so he was willing to step out on the, the, the ledge and say everything that needed to be said. Yeah. And I know he wanted to say a lot more, I'm sure, but this is where he gets cut off. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we see that balance in how he approaches them. You know, he connects with them. He shows how much he cares. He, he shows how much, you know, just like you guys. Um, but, but then, again, he's not afraid to say what needs to be said. His, yeah. his boldness is still there. And sometimes I think we, we err too far on one side or the other. Yep. Either we're way too bold and brash or we are way too timid and mm -hmm. you know don't really say anything. Yeah. Um, so we, we do have to find that balance. And it's not something that's easy to do and it's not something that we're able to do overnight. Um, it's, it's a constant process of, of learning and... Um, and we, we, but we got to realize, even if we do it perfectly, people aren't going to listen sometimes. Yep, there's still there's still the, the risk. Yeah. Um, let me say something real quick before we look at the the, the fallout here. And uh, this just occurred to me. Um, the original thing that they came and you know seized him for. Oh, he's he's brought Gentiles, you know, uncircumcised people here into the temple. Hmm. Paul never said a word about that. <laughs> you know, that's true. In this entire defense, never brings that up, and I think it's because he yeah. he realizes it's it's nonsense, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a it's 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 a rabbit, and Paul's not going to go chasing that rabbit. Yeah. And I wonder how often, again, in our our, our conversations with folks, folks lob things out that are kind of off the wall and kind of crazy, and instead of us just staying on task and staying focused on the important thing. We chase that rabbit, mm. and we end up, you know, the, the whole the whole thing just falls through, and nothing ever comes from it. Uh, Paul is tunnel vision here. When he asked for the opportunity to stand before these people uh, and speak, I think he had in his mind, I'm not even going to even address that. That's a waste of time. I've got a captive audience here. I'm going to preach the gospel. Yeah, and he it's. It, it, it's something that needed to be said. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's what these people need. Yeah. Um, and that's important. You know, there's a distinction in, okay, I'm going to ignore all the questions and then just stick to my five-point system of getting them to become a Christian. <laughs> you know, okay, well, let's let's focus on what the person needs. You know, maybe they're, right. they're throwing out these accusations, they're throwing out these things, but what they're really needing is, okay, do I believe that the Bible is the authority? Um, maybe that's where I need to go with them. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's what they need to see. And so sometimes you can tell what people need by the questions they ask. That's right. And we need we need to have some wisdom to be able to filter out. All right, that all right that that's clearly a rabbit, and and we're not going there. But this little thing that was thrown up over here, uh, yeah, yeah, actually we do need to. And, and I'm going right. to hit the pause button on my prepackaged five point lesson I'm going to teach them, <laughs> and let's deal with that. 
so that we can then cycle back because we're going to need that later on. But yeah, there needs to be some wisdom uh, in, in how we do that. So verse 22, Gentile, <laughs> up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth. Wow, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Let's just deposit this guy completely Ooh. off the face of the earth. Doesn't deserve to even you know walk on the same dirt that we do, for he should not be allowed to live. Um, you know, the crowd shouted, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" At Jesus. Um, these crowd, uh, you know, I'll give them credit that a little more poetic in what they're saying. <laughs> you know. They, a little more creative, you know, banish True. him from the face of the earth. Um, <laughs> but we are seeing here, again, the, the kind of the, the shadows. Paul is right now, he is standing where Jesus stood. Uh, he's standing where Stephen stood. Um, and actually, literally, when we get to chapter 23, he's going to, in a literal sense, be standing in the exact same spot that Stephen had stood when he stood before uh, that council. Mm-hmm. Um but we're seeing some of those images. I, I, I know I can't read this without kind of thinking of, of those prior scenes. Verse 23, And as they were shouting, and they were throwing off their cloaks, and they're flinging dust into the air, you know, just think about the irony here. They're throwing off their cloaks, probably indicative that they're you know getting ready to stone him. And yet back when Stephen was stoned, People were taking their cloaks off and they were putting them at whose feet? <laughs> yeah. They were putting them at Saul's feet. And so, um, you know, I, I, I tend to believe that Paul never forgot what role he played in Stephen's death. And I'm sure there were others as well, but especially you know, the fact that he brought Stephen up in, in this defense here and um, you know, gets, gets brought up time and again probably is indication that he he never really forgot. I don't think that means that he, you know, was always hung up on the past and didn't think that God forgave him for it, but it was just always a reminder to him of what he used to be and by the grace of God what he had become. And um moments like this probably just meant had a weight and a depth to them that you and I can't even begin to imagine, you know, because we didn't we didn't live these things out the same way that Paul did. Um, so as they're getting ready to to kill him, verse twenty four, the Tribune, the commanding officer Lysias, he orders Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So again, this guy is an officer of of the peace. And he recognizes he has a duty to maintain certain, you know, level of, of order. And we can't just have crowds going around murdering people, executing people, uh, without, you know, knowing whether it's, it's just and it's appropriate. And up to this point, Lysias, he still doesn't even really even understand what, what's going on. Um, you have to wonder, even as he sat and listened to Paul speaking, you know, what... What connections did he make? Uh, you know, did, did he come to understand anything at all as Paul was explaining? Obviously, he didn't understand everything because, again, he's still kind of clueless as to why uh, these people want Paul dead so just terribly. There's a chance that he didn't understand anything because it was Jewish Aramaic, you yeah. know, Hebrew, and 
uh, the commander might not have spoke that. Possible. Um, and especially the the point, it, it's kind of ironic, the point where they cut Paul off was when he was talking about how he was going to the Gentiles, which would describe the commander and all the Roman officials there yeah. and, you know, everything about their nation. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it to me, it's like... It, it, he had no idea yeah. what was going on. Um, well, so his suggestion there in verse 24 about we should examine him by flogging, scourging is what other translations say. Yeah. Um, probably the most famous person to be scourged is, is Jesus before he's taken to the cross. And, you know, Roman scourgings, we don't have time to talk in detail about them, and, and we probably still wouldn't even do it justice even if we tried. Yeah. But... Um, it was a horrible form of punishment. And it was designed to kind of extract, you know, a genuine confession out of somebody. It was just barbaric torture. You know, we would think about other forms that have been used in recent years, waterboarding and, and, mm. and that sort of stuff. But even, I don't even think any of that even begins to compare. The scourging is the idea of, you know, you can be strapped to like a post. Anybody who's ever seen movies like The Passion of the Christ and those movies have maybe seen some of these scenes played out, uh, probably as close to, as, as accurate as, as we can ascertain. But, you know, you'd have a, a, a wooden handle and attached to it would be all these leather strips and at the end of those strips would be, you know, pieces of bone or rock or metal, sharp objects that would be kind of ingrained into it that would give it some weight, but also at the same time would be designed to just lacerate the back of this person, the, their hind legs. Sometimes even, you know, it was, I was reading about them once where, especially if they were just, you know, totally careless and didn't care about the person, you know, the lashes would come all the way around and get the person on the front side, the back of the neck, and around to the face sometimes. Mm. Uh, just, it, it gives me chills up and down my spine just to even imagine it uh, and contemplate what that felt like. Lots of people, uh, it's been said, you know, that were scourged before a crucifixion never even made it to the crucifixion because yeah. they would die from the scourging. Um, in this particular instance, it seems like he's not suggesting let's scourge him until he dies. It's, hey, let's scourge him till we can get some, some information out of him. That was, again, kind of, it seems like the standard uh, protocol of the time. Um, and they begin to start to do that. Verse 25 uh, it talks about you know stretching him out for the whips. You know, I imagine you know starting to tie Paul to the post and getting him lined up for it. But verse 25 says, "But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, "Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned?" And this is just kind of a really <laughs> polite way. You know, Paul kind of asked this. <laughs> in, in, in a rhetorical question sense, when clearly yeah. what he means is, hey, buddy, I'm a Roman citizen, and you're about to do something to a guy who's not been given a fair trial, and you're going to get in trouble for it. Um, <laughs> doesn't say it that way. Again, he says it in a way that causes this guy to have to think about it. But um, this is Paul now finally going to you know, kind of throw out... Uh, his Roman citizenship, still not even going to use it to its fullest extent, but he is going to use it here uh, for his benefit in this moment to be able to buy him some more time, and it's ultimately going to end up gaining him a, a, a different audience here in just a few moments. Yeah, which th brings up an interesting concept. Um, is it okay to run away from persecution? 
You know, is, should we run into the arms of all danger that's coming our way? Um, is it more holy to be persecuted and... Uh, be a martyr. To be a martyr. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people, you know, sort of, uh, they, they play up the idea of being a martyr. You know, it, it sounds like a great thing. You know, people would respect me and um, I would have like a great standing and all that. Uh, no, if, if you can get away with not being beaten, why don't you do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, Paul, he was... He wasn't afraid to stand up for the truth when it was going to do that. You know, we, we saw that countless times. You know, he's been beaten up. He's been nearly killed, probably killed um, at a couple times. And, you know, he wasn't the person that was going to be afraid of that. But if you can get out of suffering unnecessarily, you know, do it. Um, if, if the government says, okay, we are going to kill all those who profess to be Christians... Okay, if they capture you and ask you, are you a Christian? Yes. You know, you, you don't lie. Don't be deceptive. Right. But don't just, like, run to the nearest police officer and be like, oh, excuse me, sir, I am a Christian. May you yeah. kill me now. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's not the way to approach that. Yeah. Um, just because we are physically punished doesn't make us more spiritual in some way. Yeah. And there's a benefit to remaining alive. I think about mm -hmm. what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 when he's, yeah. you know, facing, you know, potential Roman execution. Uh, and he says, you know, yeah, it'd be good to, to die because I get to go and be with the Lord. Hey, that's that's always great. But then he says in Philippians 1.24, remaining in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Mm -hmm. Hey, if I can remain alive a little longer then that just means I get to do that much more work for the kingdom and, and do more good things for, for Christ while I'm here in the, in, in the body. And so, um, yeah, there's, 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 no, there's not really any honor. Just I'm just going like to walk into the mouth of, of the lion, you know? We, we don't see yeah. that going on in, in, in New Testament times. That's not what the Christians uh, did. Hey, let's just, yeah, let's just openly invite and welcome <laughs> uh, persecution. No, we... We want to try to avoid that to the degree that we can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Um, I realize we're not, we can't avoid it entirely. Yeah. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy that you will suffer persecution. Uh, but that, again, that doesn't mean we need to go looking for it and, and trying to get it. Um, if you really think about it, uh, you know, it, it is a sacrifice to, you know, basically sacrifice yourself like that. But it's a much greater sacrifice to make the decision to be around longer for, you know, what, what Paul was saying. You know, the desire to, to depart and be with the Lord is much greater because he gets to be with the Lord. Yeah. But uh, he knows it's more necessary, as you read, for those around him that he sticks around. And so that was actually more of a sacrifice, if you really think about it. Yeah. Staying around exactly. and, and being on the earth to and be separate from the Lord that's harder. Yeah. Um, and so... Delaying heaven. Is there any yeah. greater sacrifice than that? Right. Yeah. Um, well, so, so, so what we see here is, is, you know, when Paul is addressing Jews, he's going to refer to his Jewish heritage. And now here as he's confronted with these Roman officers, well, he's going to refer to his privileges as a Roman citizen. Uh, so verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. 
whoa, hey, this is this is news to us. We were not aware of this. So verse 27, the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. The tribune answered, Well, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Obviously talking about his own citizenship. Uh, and Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. Hmm. I, I kind of wonder, you know, this this particular fellow, this Lysias here, uh, his citizenship was gained by he, he bought it, and I, I, I've I've tried to do research on this, and you really can't find anything concrete. But it does seem uh, one of the methods you could become a Roman citizen was was by buying it. But it, there's not really any definite numbers on like how much that would have cost a person. But I think maybe the implication here is that it probably was pretty expensive. Yeah. And I think when he looked at Paul here, here's this guy that's been beat up and pushed around and probably looking kind of ratty, probably looked at him and thought, yeah, there's no way you could afford a Roman citizenship, <laughs> yeah. so how could you possibly be one? They're selling it pretty cheap nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> they must be a clearance sale on Roman citizenships. Um, but Paul kind of makes it clear that actually his citizenship probably is a little bit better than a bought one. Yeah. Uh, mine's more pure and more true and fuller. Uh, mine was by birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and this is kind of helpful information for us, just uh, being provided for us in the Bible, that uh, here's, here's two of the ways. I don't think these were the only two, but here was two of the ways in which you could become a Roman citizen. And actually the truth is in the Roman Empire, I, I remember reading this once, that like across the whole empire, there probably only were maybe about, you know, especially at its height, maybe only about 5% of the world's population actually had citizenship. Mm-hmm. So it was a very privileged position to have, and it carried with it lots of uh, different benefits. Uh, and w- one of which <laughs> was to get yourself out of being tortured like this. Um, Romans did not scourge citizens. They did not crucify Roman citizens. Those kinds of uh, things were reserved for for, for other peoples. Um, And so Paul's kind of cashing that in here uh, in this moment. Um, Verse 29, So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. It's kind of like, whoa, get away from this guy. You know, (laughs) let's just pretend that nobody has even seen any of the things that we've done up to this point. Let's... You know, let's pull out the little pen that they use in Men in Black and they push the button and it erases <laughs> their memory and nobody remember any of this. Um, withdrew immediately and the Tribune also, he was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. You know, it, it seems to suggest there at the end of verse 29 that even just starting that process of like tying the guy up who was a Roman citizen, that would have been crossing some lines, and yeah. um, so whoa, hey, we're nope, nope, not us. We're not doing this. So uh, we got to figure out some other uh, method of what to do with this fellow. Yeah, unfortunately, they did not have a neuralizer and could not do that to there them. There we go. I couldn't think of the name of it. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and this, this is just if Paul wanted to pursue it, he could have gotten them in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So I, I think this helps us to see he wasn't just, you know, flaunting this around and uh, just making a big scene out of it just because he can. Yeah. You know, it's my right. Um, no, he, getting out of that beating, for one. Um, you know, you, you wonder, well, how was Paul born a Roman citizen? You know, because it seems like he's very Jewish. And, you know, most of the time Jews definitely weren't Roman citizens. And so... 
Uh, however that happened, whether his father or grandfather or somebody in his family must have done something great for the Roman nation to be yeah. granted that. Um, it was well, privileges afforded to people who served in like the Roman military. Maybe yeah. had a military person in his family. Right. But you think, like you said, that 5% of the population, isn't it convenient that Paul was one of those? Yeah. You know, I, I wonder if there was a, some divine intervention in there. Because maybe not just for this, but for some things that are going to come later yeah. in the book specifically. Yeah. For all, well, for all the things, again, that Jesus had, had planned for Paul to do, I, you know, when, when the Lord looked down and saw Paul, here's this guy that's got all this zeal, and saw, man, there's just great potential there. I think there was other things that the Lord saw in Paul that make mm-hmm. him an ideal candidate to be the you know the preacher to the Gentiles and um, and this certainly would have been uh, one of them uh, and just yeah, it just speaks to just the wisdom and the the, the providence of God to uh, be able to use um, work with even within just the natural order of things in order yeah. to carry out his will. This this didn't require something miraculous to take place. No, this is the Lord just using natural circumstances in order to be able to carry out uh, his will. That's something we need to consider. Look at look at our lives. Look at your life. Who are you around? What position are you in? Yep. Who do you have an influence over? Who are you able to connect with? Everybody has a specific you know, subset of people that they're around. Um, I, I see that as, you know, a ministry we can look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Paul, he had done nothing to earn that Roman citizenship. It wasn't like, man, he's such a great person. We're going to also give him citizenship. No, he was, he was born with that. He yeah. couldn't change that. Um, you know, and so we need to look at the things, well, what has God put in my life? That maybe I've, I've, I haven't earned, uh, you know, I, I haven't studied for this. I haven't done anything. Um, where has God put us that we have opportunities that other people wouldn't? Um, and, and let's focus on that. Yeah. Um, not, not, we don't need to focus on, man, I wish I could go do, go do that. Or I wish I had this ability. Well, what, what abilities do you have? Yeah. And what positions has God put you in? It's not just about abilities, but... Um, sometimes it's just where you happen to be. Yeah. Well, the final verse of chapter uh, 22. Uh, so, all right, what are we going to do with this guy? Well, here's what we'll do with him. Verse 30, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, uh, Lysias unbound him, and he commanded that the chief priests and all the council that they should meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Um you know, Lysias being able to just kind of order, and especially this quickly, a uh, a meeting of the Sanhedrin Council is who's being referenced here. Yeah. Uh, probably speaks to he probably had maybe a higher measure of of authority than uh, we've maybe even thought up to this point. Uh, but he's able to tell these guys in pretty quick order: you all meet together and you all take care of him. And, um, of course, the Sanhedrin Council would have met there at the temple. So if he's there with them, this probably means they're, they're there in that outer court of the Gentiles because Lysias wouldn't have been allowed to go past uh, that particular point. Uh, but calls them to, to, to come together and, again, you all deal with him mm-hmm. and, and you help me you know, to be able to figure out what's, what, what's going on with this guy. I need to be able to hear this so that I can then make the right determinations about what to do with him next. And once again, our wonderful translators and people who are in charge of verse and chapter divisions 
have left us with a, uh, a kind of a huge cliffhanger because <laughs> uh, we're left here with Paul before the Sanhedrin council, same council Jesus was brought in front of, same group of people that uh, Stephen was brought in front of, and we'll have to wait till next week to figure out uh, how that goes. I'm starting to believe they did that on purpose. I mean, <laughs> just, you know, what can we do to make them want to read the next chapter? <laughs> yeah. Um, final thoughts on uh, 22, though, before we do uh, put a bow on it. Well, I think it's just, it's interesting, even though half this chapter was a repeat of what we've already seen, um, it's good to revisit things, see it from a different angle even, um, and, and, and think through um, what the implications are. If, if something's repeated in the Bible, usually it means it's really important, we need mm -hmm. to listen, we need to pay attention mm -hmm. to it. Um, and so there are reasons we shouldn't just gloss over it. I, I think it's good to look at the details. Look at what's different because that helps us to see uh, maybe a different side of it, a more a full picture of this. Um, but then, yeah, th this whole deal with, with the, the Roman um, centurion, well, not the centurion, he the commander. Mm -hmm. By the way, centurion, think of, you know, Cornelius in chapter 10 was a centurion in charge mm -hmm. of a hundred soldiers. That commander was in charge of a thousand, so he had he was a much higher ranking official. And um, you know everything that's happening in this situation, it's making waves, and it's it's bringing a lot of focus and a lot of attention um, to what Paul is going to say, what what he's going to do. Um, and I think that you know as if we were a first time reader of this and just thinking through, man, when when we read read about Jesus in front of the council. Remember what happened to him? And, and like you said, with Stephen, the same thing. Um, now, what is going to happen with Paul? Um, you know, what, what's going to be his fate? You know, we're, he's we're 0 get, for 2. He's going to get smacked in the mouth is what's going to happen, actually, in the next chapter. Uh, but we'll have to save that for, for next week. And there, I don't know, there's, there's actually some... There'll be some good fodder for discussion just in these uh, opening verses of, of chapter 23 and the interactions that Paul has with uh, the, the the council here. And just some uh, cleverness also kind of yeah, gets uh, brought to the uh, to the table. Um, but we'll stop there. That's, that's chapter 22. I uh, appreciate folks that are listening and who continue to listen. And uh, as always, um, if there's questions or even disagreements with anything that we've said, we'll be glad to field those uh, thoughts and ideas that you may have. And uh, I'm going to steal Jason's uh, catchphrase. Let's just keep studying our Bibles. Mm.